We're going to continue right now in Ruth together. We started last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's message, you weren't here, um, I would really encourage you to go online. There was a lot of background we looked at, and the whole book of Ruth, there's only four chapters, so we're only spending four weeks in it, uh, but the whole book kind of hinges on the first chapter to really understand everything going on, and so we looked at the first chapter last week, so go back. It's on our website, anthologychurch.com, and click on media, and you can find it there. I want to kick off our time here talking about what we value in people when you think about what we value. Last week, uh, we talked about how a lot of times we can take our 21st century perspective on history, beauty, and truth, and sometimes we can place those in judge over other time periods like the one we're looking at here, 3,000 years or so old this story is. Um, and so, But to really get a proper understanding of ourselves and history, we need to recognize that every point in history, every time period, every culture has some positive points and some more negative points. And the, really the ultimate standard that we look at if you're a follower of Jesus is what the scriptures say about what is true and what is beautiful and what is right. And those, for followers of Jesus, those come in authority over our own 21st century, say, Los Angeles culture or American culture that we are in. And one of the things, as we talked about kind of that warning last week, one of the things that happen when you take that perspective is you allow, you start to go, well, my worldview and my perspective in 2014 isn't always right and necessarily true. Uh, And you start to let other cultures speak into your uh, viewpoint. And what we assume is good, we may see when it's critiqued by other worldviews and other cultures, and specifically the scriptures, uh, we may see that some of those don't actually line up with what they thought we, what we thought they did and what was really valuable. Um, one of those things, especially for us in Studio City and Los Angeles, is the value we place on image. So if you think about it, a lot of times, whether we realize it or not, our city is preaching to us, especially to women, for instance, that your value and your worth is found on how pretty you are, how good-looking you are, um, how you maybe express your individuality in that appearance that you have. And actually, I would say that's an overvalue. We'll talk about what that, what that means. But an overfocus on image actually has some devastating results on everyone in our culture, but especially on women. I want to read you a few stats that the Center for Disease Control, CDC, uh, puts out. And here's some of the stats in regards to how that affects women. So uh, for women 20 years old and older, the average height of a woman in America is about 5'3", and the average weight is about 166. The average model you see on TV is 5'10", and weighs about 120 pounds. So the discrepancy there is great. By age six, girls start to express concerns about their own weight or shape. 40 to 60% of elementary school girls ages 6 to 12 are concerned about their weight or becoming too fat. This concern endures throughout their life, usually. Uh, The best-known contributor to the development of anorexia and bulimia is body dissatisfaction. The median age for onset of an eating disorder in adolescence is 12 to 13 years old. In the U.S., over 20 million women suffer at some point from a clinically significant eating disorder at some point in their lives. Uh, Only 4% of women globally consider themselves beautiful, 4% around the world. And lastly, a study published in the Journal of Eating Disorders found that while fat talk, which is women saying, oh, I feel fat, or I feel, you know, 
really heavy, tends to decrease with age. It gets replaced by old talk about, oh, I'm looking so old, I have crow's feet, um, something like that. And that gets reported. Same women that did one tend to do the other as they get older. Uh, I want to show you guys a video that Dove did. I realize I have music playing on here, so I want to make sure I have that. Uh, I'm going to get out of here and make sure I quit that before... Uh, because I would be playing over the video, which would not make much sense. So we're going to do that. I will show you a video that Dove made um, that kind of speaks into this issue and gives a tang tangible representation of what happens when our culture overvalues uh, image and how that can play out. So I want to play that video, and then we'll keep going. Hey, everyone. This is Pastor DJ. Since we can't show the video on the audio clip for the podcast, uh, we included a link to the video we showed uh, during the message uh, in the notes of the podcast. Uh, we'll tweet it out as well, but if you look in the notes, you'll see a link there, so just copy and paste it, and you should get to the video. The video is really impactful and worth seeing, uh, or look in our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed this week uh, around the time when we posted this message. This is Sunday, July 13th, and you will be able to see the video. And now back to the rest of the message. Well, increasingly, uh, the effects that an overvaluing of image on our society. Don't just affect women, of course. It affects men more and more. But even if you don't happen to struggle with your image, that video shows that we know there's something wrong about how much emphasis, right? Like, why would you make that video if you didn't say there's something wrong about how we, our culture values image or what it makes women in particular feel about themselves? Why do they feel so different than what how other people feel? We kind of know there's something going on that's not totally right. Well, the story of Ruth, connecting it back, and the whole story of the scriptures tell us a very different story than our Los Angeles, our LA culture, tells us in this regard. The scriptures and Ruth don't ignore physical beauty necessarily, but it calls us to value something that is much deeper in people. Uh, Ruth and Boaz are going to show us a love story. We're really going to start to see that come through now. But it's not revolving around how good two people look, but it's one that revolves around the character of the two uh, people to define the quality of person that they are. And valuing that ends up bringing the greatest redemption there actually can be, as we will see not too long from now. So I'm going to read Ruth chapter 2. It'll be up here as well. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. It's not too far after the beginning, or you can read on your device. There's a link on the front of the bulletin. Again, it's a little lengthy, uh, but stick with us, and then we'll make some observations about it. So this is Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you also be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you remember uh, the end of chapter 1, if you were here last week, we get an indication from the author something big is coming. And it's going to happen during the barley harvest. And we're starting to see that come about here. Now, at the beginning of the second chapter, which is kind of like, there's really, the chapters are kind of like four scenes in a play or in a story, which is obviously what this is, a true story. But it's the second scene, and it opens, and we're going to get to meet Boaz for the first time. The author introduces us to Boaz with a very uh, curious line, and here's what it says. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So Naomi and Ruth, they're now living in Bethlehem. They're back uh, in Naomi's hometown. And the author just pops in this random detail, seemingly out of nowhere, about who this man, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's dead husband's family. His name is Boaz. Now, for us, if you think about it, that might seem, if you know the whole story, you know why that matters. But it, might, it seems kind of like a random detail. Okay, doesn't Naomi, isn't she probably related to a good amount of people, at least distantly? In her hometown, why do we hear about this one, one guy? What's the big deal here? Well, of course, we're going to see more at the end of the chapter why that's such a huge deal. But for now, remember, we talked about last week 
that your life, your worth, your value, so much back then, especially for women, was tied up in your ability to have children and then grandchildren after that. And if you had no offspring, no grandchildren, then you were considered as your life being over and really worthless in some ways. The author is hinting to us that Boaz potentially is going to have something to do with continuing Naomi's family through Ruth. But we have to see. We're on kind of, there's tension. We're on pins and needles seeing what's going to happen if that's really going to come true. So let's take a look at what happens with uh, Boaz here as it starts out. The first line, as we kind of start to see their character come into view, the first line uh, uh, at the beginning mentions that we just looked at, mentions that Boaz was a worthy man. That's the author's way of telling us he was a man of, of really great character. It probably also refers that he had a good amount of wealth. That word in Hebrew can mean a few different things. Um, but And we notice he also owns fields and has servants, so he does have some money as well. But the wonderful thing is we'll see next week is Ruth is the heroine, of course, of the story. And that same word, worthy, is used to describe her. We'll start to see that. So it's really bringing out both their characters together. And we know Ruth certainly wasn't uh, wealthy at all, but it still is referring to her character. And it comes to pass that Ruth tells Naomi she'd like to go glean in the fields. Uh, we need some help going on because we don't... How many of you have gone gleaning in the last few days? Uh, probably none of you. I'd be surprised. I'd be really shocked if you had. But Ruth here, what she's actually doing, we'll understand it, but what she's doing is really an amazing, beautiful thing for Naomi here. Remember, Naomi and Ruth, since they're not married, they have no immediate men in their lives, so they have no one to really provide for them. So Ruth and Naomi are really in a pretty desperate place where they need to depend essentially on handouts from other people if they're going to eat and if they're going to be able to survive. They're going to have to depend on the kindness of others. Well, Ruth, she's a go-getter. She Amazingly, she's not going to wait around for someone to come and do that. She's going to go take the initiative herself, get to work, and hope that God will somehow provide for her through some people. So gleaning, what's this whole deal? What, what the heck does that mean? Let's get a little time out here. Uh, remember, at this point in time, the Jewish people were under Mosaic law. The commands and lots of commands were handed down to Moses, from God to Moses, and given out to the people. And it included, of course, a lot of moral commands like the Ten Commandments. Do not kill. Do not take God's name in vain. Do not have any idols, things like that. Don't steal. Lots of things like that. But it also included lots of rules and regulation, commands about how society was to function and work out. And... It had a lot of commands about how, God, how the people were to provide for the poor, the needy, the foreigner, the immigrant that came through Israel at that time. It would come through the society. There is an unbelievable thread through the entire scriptures about how much God cares for the poor, how much he cares for the oppressed, how much he cares for people that lack power in society. We don't have time now to look at that. We will at some point. We haven't really gotten there in our point in um, our church, but we will at some point really take a good long look at that. But so you can know for now, that's one of the reasons we're a part of the North Hollywood Interfaith Food Pantry. That's one of the ways we can tangibly live out God's heart for those who are needy. So that's just a side thing. But here's what, here's how the ESV Study Bible, which I highly recommend to everyone, but here's how the ESV Study Bible puts the process of gleaning and how people were to, the nation was to provide for people. So here's what it says. It says, provisions for the poor sojourners or immigrants or people traveling through, widows and orphans allowed them to gather standing grain 
in corners or borders of fields, as well as drop stalks and left behind sheaths. So let me show you one of the places this occurs. So in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, here's what God tells them. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, making grapes. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. So you see, God was, God was working out ways so that people who were poor and in need, like Naomi and Ruth are, could be provided for and still eat. Uh, this was early socialism, if you will. No, I'm just kidding. It's living off the goodness of other people. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament or the New, for that matter, you know just because God says something doesn't mean people do it, right? <laughs> so just because it's commanded doesn't mean uh, everyone's going to do it. So Ruth says... She's hoping she's going to find someone that will love God and be able to provide like this, but she doesn't know for sure it's going to happen. But really, this highlights, again, Ruth's amazing character. One thing you can say about Ruth is that she's not a woman that sits around and does nothing. She's really, she's a go-getter. She is assertive. Um, she's led by God and what he's done in her life and her love for Naomi, and she's going to go and, uh, and get to work in a sense. Ruth is really, ladies and men, Ruth is a great example of what a woman of God looks like. It doesn't mean you sit around uh, sub, uh, subservient to everyone else that comes behind your life doing nothing but sitting in the kitchen, which is totally the you know, stereotypical uh, negative view. But Ruth teaches us that a woman of God is someone that has amazing character, someone that takes the initiative within the structures God has placed in her life, you notice Ruth still asks Naomi's permission because she's kind of under her authority. But women of God are to be bold, to be strong in what God has called you to do, and using your unique gifts as a woman and the unique gifts God has given you to serve God and serve other people. And Ruth is really a great, great example of that. And now we get to meet Boaz as well and see his character come into more focus. Um, notice the author tells us she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Isn't that, I, I love, I, we don't know who wrote Ruth, if you remember, but I love, it's such a subtle, oh, it just happened, happened to be that she comes into the field. If you know the end of the story, we're going to see God really guiding so much of this, but I love the subtleness. This really is a big deal that Ruth ends up in Boaz's field because Ruth is now in the one field of the one person that could potentially change everything for Naomi and for her. So, so we're at a point of tension. Is he going to let her glean? Is he going to let her take some of that food? Is he going to realize that, she, that he's a near relative of hers? Is he already married? Is he able to take on her as his wife? We're, we don't know. We're at this point of, ah, oh, what's going to happen? But it's a big deal uh, coming in here. He doesn't know. There's so much tension here if you really know what's going on. So Boaz comes up to the field. We get to meet him. The first thing the author tells us is that he blesses his workers, the reapers, the ones that are working in the field and taking in all the grain and such, and they bless him back. Again, this is another kind of character thing we're seeing in Boaz. He's a man of God, right? And they are someone, he, his workers respect him, so he must be a man of good character, fair and honest. They don't answer back, yeah, I got your blessing here, you know, or something like that. They say, the Lord bless you in return. There's a, which shows, again, it must be, he must be an honest and good person. And then look what happens. 
uh, Boaz notices Ruth, right? And I think that I think there's not we don't know for sure, and I didn't look up enough in the in the Hebrew word about notices notices is, but I think there's more here going on than just oh hey there's Ruth look at her you know I think there's like oh who is that you know kind of going on here, uh, and so we're again we're on pins and needles. What's going to happen is. What's going to happen in this relationship? Is there going to be a relationship? He's noticed her. What's going to go on right here? Um, I can remember, I'll think back to my own relationship uh, with Alicia. Um, I remember this, you guys will probably think this is lame. It's very not romantic at all. But the first time I noticed Alicia in this way, we had been friends for about three years. My friends know our, our story, so they're laughing uh, at me right now. Uh, but we had been friends for a long time, several years uh, and I had, she had liked me for a while, turns out, and I, like many guys, and like Boaz, we'll see, uh, needed kind of a kick in the pants uh, to really realize what was going on. So I actually had older guys telling me, either you need to date her or step back because she likes you and you don't know it, and so stop messing with her heart in your friendship. But we had, at one point, when we were, we were in a good place as friends, um, we had gone to see uh, the third Lord of the Rings movie. I don't know if, I think Steve was there. Dre, were you at that too? Okay, whatever. We had gone to see the last Lord of the Rings, uh, and we had come out of the movie, and we're all standing, a bunch of us were just friends, standing in a circle talking about what do we think about the movie and things going on. And I kid you not, Alicia said something in the midst of this conversation. I can't even remember what it was, but it was like a, as if God had flipped a switch in my mind, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, Alicia. Hmm. And it was, and from that moment, it was about a year and a half later. I went away for a year to Brazil. I was on a, a mission trip for a year uh, there, working at a university, um, and came back after that. We were engaged four months after that, and married three months after that. So from that one uh, Lord of the Rings conversation, it was about a year and a half, uh, and then we were married. But that was the first time I noticed, and I think that's kind of the same thing going on with Boaz uh, here. It doesn't. Scripture doesn't explicitly say that, but I think there's enough play to tell that. So, Boaz wants to know, he notices Ruth, he wants to know what, who is this lady? And the workers tell him, she's Naomi's daughter, and she's come to provide for Naomi. And she hasn't stopped gleaning, she hasn't stopped working, except for a short break um, at all. So, again, we see the character of Ruth coming in. She is a hard worker. Contrary to what many think the Bible says, there are actually a ton of examples in Scripture of strong, competent, assertive women and Ruth, again, is one, one of the best. In the next few verses, what happens next is really uh, wonderful. We see Boaz's character coming to focus again. Um, now, remember, if Boaz wasn't a man of God, if he wasn't a follower of Yahweh at that point, which is the name of God uh, in the Old Testament, one of them, he might not have provided for her and allowed her to glean. But as he is, he goes way beyond what she needs. You know, the author says he's like removing all barriers. He's telling his guys, make sure she has lots of food. You know, get, get her all sorts of tons. Tell, he tells her, don't go anywhere else. You don't need to glean anywhere else here. All you need is going to be provided for right here. He tells her, I'll protect you essentially. I've told the other guys, don't touch you, which probably means she was a little attractive probably, because, you know, if guys might assault her or, or do something to her, she probably, um, she probably was somewhat attractive physically. But he comes in, he's going to protect her, he's going to care for her. Ruth, understandably, is amazed and kind of shocked here because she didn't know it was going to happen. She didn't know God would provide for her through anyone, and now she's really being extremely cared for by Boaz. 
But, but here's the question. It, why is Boaz doing this? You know, why is he being so kind and so good? Is it just because he thinks she's really good-looking, maybe? And goes, oh, look at her. I'll give her all, all I have. Well, we're going to see there's a lot more going on. The next few verses tell us. Boaz tells Ruth. Ruth asks, oh, my gosh, why? You know, I found such favor. Why are you doing this? Boaz tells us he's heard about the amazing things that Ruth has done for Naomi. He's heard how she left all she knew in Moab to care for Naomi and come here. He also understands Ruth has done an amazing thing and is really trusting Yahweh. She's really come to follow God because the phrase he uses, notice he says, coming under uh, Yahweh's wings in a sense, whose wings you've come to take refuge under. Now that, log that away in your memory. That phrase is going to come up again in the next chapter. So Jason will be speaking next week as we'll be gone. He'll be teaching. And that phrase is going to come up again. So that's not just a a throwaway phrase. It is a beautiful way to describe coming under and trusting God and what that looks like. Um, But for now, just log that away and we'll see that later on. But it's really Ruth's, Ruth's character, right, that draws his attention from Boaz. Um. And this is really where we get the best picture of how the book of Ruth critiques our cultural value of image. So let's talk about this. What we see in Ruth and Boaz um, and what's drawing them together in this evolving love story that's starting to unfold here is not their image, not how attractive they are necessarily on the outside. Notice the author really says, besides the hinting at, there's really nothing that the author says about what Boaz looked like, what Ruth looked like at all. Um, We don't know if they work out at LA Fitness six times a week. We don't know if they have a yoga subscription at all. Well, probably, you know, who knows. We don't know if they have a personal trainer that they uh, get their image in shape with. Uh, We don't know if they're on an all-organic diet or if Ruth, uh, what size Ruth is. We don't know if Ruth wears seven jeans or if she's got the $20 Target off-brand, right? We don't know those things. But what we do know is that Boaz is drawn to the amazing love, the amazing care, and the godliness that Ruth exhibits. She's a hard worker. She sacrifices for others in taking care of Naomi. She's assertive. She's a go-getter. She's active in the community. And she's shown that she really treasures Yahweh above all. She treasures God above all else. At the same time, we're seeing the author paint a picture of Boaz's character. Like we've said, he is a man who above all loves God. He treats others fairly, apparently. He's providing for and protecting Ruth. Though she has, at this point, he doesn't know. She has no relation to him at this point. We don't, he doesn't know that as far as we can tell. He's, caring, he's a man caring for the poor and the oppressed and the needy. We'll see later, next chapter, we'll see both Boaz is also an amazing example of self-control in the midst of temptation as well. So in Ruth and Boaz, the whole story and the rest of scriptures are really pushing back against what our culture says in regards to what's most valuable of a person. It says our image is not what's most valuable. But in a sense, here's what this story and the scriptures are telling women, for instance. It says, you think that if you're pretty enough, skinny enough, have enough of the right clothes, have all other women thinking you're beautiful or have the right guys wanting you, then you'll be somebody and you'll be truly happy. But true happiness is found in rooting yourself in something other than your outside appearance. It's in having character 
and honor and caring for others that truly makes you beautiful, not your outward appearance. And for men, it's probably saying something like, you think that if you have the hot chick or the most or best sex, if you have the most success or money, you'll be truly happy. That if you have the perfect six pack, (laughs) the trophy wife or other things that you'll have made it. But true happiness is found in rooting yourself in something outside of your performance or your physical pleasure. It's found in having a tough and tender character formed and seeing a love greater than your own. It's found in being a man that protects and cares for those in need, your own family and those in the greater society, and having the self-control to live out that selflessness for other people. And we, need, we need the scriptures to speak into this in our culture in this regard um, so that they're shaped by, we're shaped by what really matters uh, and our ha- for our own happiness and for God's glory. So hopefully, this is my hope for anthology, as we see this and we ask God to kind of work this in our character. Anthology should be a place where women are not treated based on their physical appearance, uh, but loved and cared for regardless of what they look like. Anthology should be a place where we all work hard at self-sacrifice for the sake of others, not where we work hard to look good and look attractive. It should be a place where we strive for self-control together and not where we work hard to express our own individuality. But the truth is, if you think about, I think about how I look a lot of times, and I'm, uh, and statistics say, and I know enough about my wife and other women that uh, ladies do it even more than guys do in a lot of ways. But if we look at what the scriptures say in this regard, we'll probably see we really all fall short of that in a lot of ways, don't we? We all care more about how we look than we should. The scriptures actually say there are grave consequences to overvaluing the wrong things. Like we say, saw in the stats in the Dove video, which showing that it really has serious consequences. But the scriptures also speak about because God designed us to treasure Him and not those other things, there are eternal consequences before God. Modern and progressive societies like ours are not just damaging ourselves and women, and men for that matter, but we are damaging our relationship with God because He designed us for something different than treasuring our image uh, more than anything else. And yet, there are more traditional cultures, still within the United States and other places, that tend to value character and self-control and the things we've talked about in Ruth and Boaz that line up more in this regard with what Scripture says. But Scripture also says you can take those values and you can absolutize them in a way that brings error in the opposite direction. So when there's no mercy or grace offered with those high standards then you can actually create a self-righteousness in yourself or a pride of, yeah, I am. I do have good character. I do provide for other people. I am a good person. Or if you feel like you're not measuring up to those standards, you can go into despair and say, I'll never be that good. I can never be good enough. I can never do that. The scriptures say something incredible. That creates just as much damage in your relationship with God, just as much harm on people as rebelling and going the opposite way. It's very contrary to what a lot of progressive and modern people think, but the Bible condemns self-righteousness even more potentially than it does outright rebellion against him. It's really amazing, especially if you look at how Jesus talked to people who were self-righteous. So we're left in this place going, what do we do? We fall short of who we are, who we strive to be, but even when we strive 
to have the right values, we can end up in self-righteousness at times if we go the opposite direction. Well, the rest of the chapter really kind of sorts out, and the whole of Scripture sort out, that what we need is not just standards to live by. We need a Redeemer to save us from our failures. We're going to see this coming into picture as Naomi's bitterness starts to change to hope. So if you remember, if you were here last week, I said, I think this book should be called Naomi. So I'm going to go back to uh, all our Jewish friends and authors that wrote this. No. And say, I'm going to lobby to get it changed. But do you remember where we last left Naomi? She was destitute. She was bitter. She was downtrodden because her husband and her two sons had both died. And she was left with next to nothing. No hope for offspring. No hope for a continued life and her name to continue in any sort of way, almost purposeless. She tells the townspeople of Bethlehem, call me Mara, which means bitter. She doesn't want to be known by Naomi, which means pleasant. Well, Ruth comes back after this amazing encounter with Boaz, and she's coming back full of uh, food that she has because she's gotten so many. You saw it said, I can't remember how many EFAFs it was, but that's about 22 liters of grain. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of food um, going on that she came back with. So when she comes back and she tells Naomi it's Boaz, everything begins to change. So she comes back overflowing with food and provision. Ruth has just left. And when she had left, remember, it was a bit of a risk, right? Naomi didn't know what would happen to her if someone was going to provide for her. They were really hoping and kind of crossing their fingers, if you will. But clearly once once Naomi sees what Ruth has brought back, she knows Everything has changed, and someone has provided. Someone has been really kind. So something has gone different. She's brought back so much food, they're going to be provided for. So Naomi, naturally, wants to know, who is this? Who gave you you all these huge liters of food that you're coming back with? Um, And Ruth comes in, and she tells her it's Boaz. Now, this is where you've got to understand the drama that is going on in that line. This is where that one line for Naomi changes everything in her perspective. But we have to understand some of the context of why. Otherwise, it just kind of flies by our eyes because it's a different different culture. So Naomi realizes everything has changed in this moment. And there's once again hope for her and Ruth because she knows what the Mosaic Law talks about. So when it talks about nearby relatives. So you see the phrase kinsman redeemer here is one that gets mentioned and talked about in scripture. You see, just like we mentioned before, God was concerned caring for the poor, the most helpless, the most needy in society, the most desperate. So those commands included things about uh, in the law about protecting widows and children who happen to be some of the most helpless in society, especially a society, a patriarchal one like that. And because your life and your finances were tied up in your land, there were also provisions and commands that the land should be kept within the family to find a relative who would be able to keep your land so your wealth could continue and go on. So I'll show you two, two quick examples so you guys can kind of see. This doesn't encapture all of it, but it shows some of it. So in Leviticus 25, it says this, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity forever, for the land is mine, God says. You are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land to be bought back. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what the brother has sold. And then in regards to um, wives, here's what it says. If If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, son to carry on the name of the family and carry on their hope, 
The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. As you guys see, there's lots of other stipulations. It's kind of complex. We don't, this doesn't really happen to us now, except in terms of maybe you think of your inheritance getting passed down. We make a will, so it gets passed down. This was some of the commands God gave so that the land and so that the name could go on. But, so in this case, there were other stipulations as well. That it mentions brother here, but if it wasn't the brother, then the next closest relative may redeem the land and the wife. In this case, Ruth would be that wife. So do you, do you guys start to see now why Naomi's whole perspective is turning around? The author told us at the beginning that Boaz is a not-too-distant relative. So there's hope. He's one of those potential redeemers. Boaz, if he chooses to marry Ruth, would save all Naomi's land, would save, and if, if they had a child, had a son after that, the name would continue and her name would go on and there would be hope and joy again. So everything could turn around. And look, he's already been so kind to Ruth, so we know he's a man of good character, so Naomi, everything, you see, everything changed. So look at, look at the next line. She can tell she's excited. In verse 20, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead! Exclamation point. So Naomi is excited. Oh my gosh, God has been so kind. Look at this. Uh, her statement is incredibly different than before, right? Remember before? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Bitter. <laughs> She's upset. Now there's hope for Naomi again. Uh, Naomi informs Ruth that Boaz is a potential redeemer for them and thus might be their salvation in terms of the land and their family. Ruth responds with excitement back that, well, and he was unbelievably kind and protected me, so maybe he, you know, she's kind of thinking, maybe he even likes me, and maybe, maybe there's a chance he would marry me. Uh, but she doesn't know, and so there's all this, oh my gosh, what's going to happen going on here? So we're left at the very end of the chapter, seeing Ruth continues to stick close to Boaz. Naomi says, stay near, stay with his women, be around. You know, if, maybe if you're around more, then he'll take notice of you and more, and you'll end up getting married. Um, but we're left at the end of the chapter, not seeing a resolution yet. So we're left kind of on the edge of our seats going, what's going to happen here? Uh, but is Boaz going to marry Ruth? Does he know he's a redeemer? Does he know what he could do for them and how much of a difference he could make? Does he even like Ruth or is he just kind of being kinder or just being a good Jew at that point? What is going to happen? Well, next week it gets even more interesting. <laughs> You'll see. Uh, so make sure you come back next week to see how uh, really the peak of the story. It's kind of scandalous, too, So, uh, if that excites you. But uh, well, the last thing, guys, as we remember, you know, I left off before we went to this section, and I said, uh, we have a problem. We have a problem of overvaluing image, and the converse of overvaluing good character and self-control resulting in potential self-righteousness. So what are we to do with that problem, creating uh, uh, tension in our relationship with God? Well, this ancient love story with all the tension about is there going to be a redeemer for Ruth and Boaz and will they be rescued, it foreshadows a much greater redeemer that's out there. Boaz has exemplary character in the story and so does Ruth, right, as a man and as a woman. But in the end, they're just people with faults like our own. 
Let me show you one more time the line that Naomi has when she responds to Ruth, uh, when she hears about Boaz. So she says in excitement, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. That word whose in Hebrew right there is ambiguous. So that means we don't know if Naomi specifically referring to Boaz's kindness or is she referring to God's kindness through Boaz? And most likely the author is saying it's both at the same time going on here. Naomi is stunned by God's kindness to her. Remember, she thinks God is totally against her. She thinks, why would all these things happen to me? Surely he is angry at me and something I've done wrong. But now she is stunned by her kindness and to Ruth through the potential redeemer of Boaz. But of course we know, and if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're not, we know, hopefully, there is one who's not just a potential redeemer for us, but actually moved heaven and earth to redeem us. There's one who wasn't just a person, a man or a woman with faults like our own, but was God himself come to earth to save us and rescue us. There's one who didn't just have exemplary character, but had perfect character, sinless in everything he did. There's one who never gave in to the temptation of being self-righteous, although he, he could have been if anyone was, because he was absolutely righteous, but he was never self-righteous. He never overvalued image as well and treated people according to what they look like on the outside. And he did not leave us in limbo like Ruth and Naomi are left at the end of the chapter here, but he redeemed us completely through his death and his resurrection on the cross. And when he becomes our treasure, when we see what he did, when he gave his life, when we see what, how much of a redeemer he is, then our image and what we look like on the outside will take the proper place in our lives. And it'll just be how we look. And we'll properly value character and self-discipline as well. And we'll be a community of people who treat one another, not according to what we look like on the outside, but according to the kindness of the one who's redeemed us. We'll have self-discipline and character because we look at the one who had such character and such discipline to go to the cross to love us and to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. Um, I thank you that we, we do have examples of incredible people of character. Ruth, Boaz are really, we get, we get to see the step back scene of their love story coming to fruition and what's happening. We get kind of the movie perspective view. But I'm thankful we get to see two people who love you, know you, trust you, and who really give us models of what a godly man and a godly woman can and possibly can look like. But Father, even Ruth and Boaz, we know, um, fell way short. Um, They were tempted, and I'm sure they had um, sin just like the rest of us do. And so many of us, if we're honest in our own hearts, we fall so short of who you are and what you've done. We either uh, fall to the side of valuing what we look like and caring too much, making that an idol, as it were, in our life, or... Like I so often do, we become self-righteous and think we have it all together and think we're pretty good. Um, and so, Father, but we praise you that you have sent a Redeemer far greater than Boaz ever was, um, one that rescued and saved us completely, one that didn't look uh, for us to be lovely, 
before he redeemed us, but one that saw us in all our ugliness and all our messed upness and all our brokenness and uh, redeemed us completely. So I pray for anyone that doesn't already know you as their redeemer and their uh, God, that they would put their trust in you. They would see how great and kind you are. And I pray you'd bless us all now as we sing about you and your goodness and your redemption. And uh, you would help us now to live this out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.